I cannot believe how hard it is for us, how this society makes it so convoluted that we don't even know how to hold society accountable at this point in time. And so at the very least, the, the value of psychoanalysis to the world is that I think it clears out some of those clouds and gives you a sense of, of how to apportion um, a sense of responsibility. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Red Medicine, a podcast about radical politics, medical anthropology and the sociology of science. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Jameson Webster about the body and sexuality, specifically why she feels psychoanalysis is a better place to understand these things than medicine and medical knowledge. Jameson Webster is a psychoanalyst based in New York and the author of numerous books including Life and Death of Psychoanalysis and Conversion Disorder. Her writing has appeared regularly in publications such as Art Forum, Spike Art Magazine, and the New York Review of Books. And in this conversation, Jameson discusses some of the topics addressed in her most recent collection of essays, titled Disorganization and Sex, which published in June of last year with Divided Publishing. I ask her about her work as a psychoanalyst, what psychoanalysis offers in understanding sexuality, and her engagement with thinkers such as Freud, Lacan, and Paul Preciado. Could you give listeners who might not have read this collection of essays an overview of, of some of the things you're addressing? What are some of the sort of shared concerns that you think bring these essays together in this collection? Uh, it, was a, it was really a construction by the editors of Divided Press. So I really credit them because they went through my work and they selected bits and pieces out and in a way thematized it. And I was fascinated and grateful to hear that I had a consistent work of some kind over all of these years. And, you know, it's true, actually, if you look at, at the two, three books that I've written, one, one of those three is co-authored, that, that they shared the same concern. So one is just psychoanalytic questions in general, you know, really trying to talk about the work, um, what I feel is radical and unique about it, and um, the kind of ways in which a patient gets to know themselves and the work and how we think about the unconscious. So to really put that in the foreground, but then also link it to broader questions, I think, of what's happening in a given culture around sex, around desire, around the ways that we kind of politically organize, repress, inhibit discipline, and then to think about institutions more generally. And then that institutional concern drives itself towards the problems of psychoanalytic institutions and psychoanalytic training, because I think it's interesting that you can have a practice that for me is as radical and open and you know trying to open itself to what society is always pushing back against and then when it itself has to organize itself as a as a as a training as an education as a 
institution that it, it gets it so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, so sort of push back on, on, you know, what difficulties we psychoanalysts have had and, and to think about that more. So the title Disorganization and Sex of this collection of, of essays was so great. I mean, at first I was like, that's, I was like, that's what you want to call the book. Um, and then I, I really have taken to it. So. And what is it about the relationship between sex and disorganization? I mean, what, 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 what are you meaning by disorganization in this context? Well, it's great because I think the sexuality that um, we put forward is a, is a sexuality without organs. <laughs> the impossible genital sexuality that everybody wants so badly and then you know by virtue of that the disorganization of organization the, <laughs> the organless organizations and you know just in a more broad sense the disruptive aspects of sexuality i mean i think the the kind of hard line in psychoanalysis at the end of the day is that as that the unconscious unconscious sexuality is disruptive too the sedimented forms that exist in life, whether that's one's identity or one's conscious conception of oneself, or whether that's the ways that society tries to organize identities and conscious conceptions of itself into ideas of nations, into institutions, into forms of education, and so on and so forth. And that there's always something, there's always something underneath that it's organizing that it can't completely organize. Um, there's a a line that really stood out to me in the preface to the collection that I, I thought could be like an interesting starting point for us to think about. Um, there's a moment where you write that the sexuality of bodies brings medical practitioners towards something they don't understand. What is it about the sexuality of bodies that you think kind of pushes medical knowledge to a kind of breaking point? Yeah, you know, a student of mine, um, I will name him, Jack Wareham, just wrote an amazing paper on Lacan. He took my um, advanced Lacan class at the New School for Social Research. And, you know, based on things that we had discussed throughout the semester, um, wrote an excellent paper about how, you know, he said, he said, is psychoanalysis just some outdated Viennese turn of the century garbage? Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's you know, it's, it's obsession with sexuality. It's like a, you know, a Victorian obsession. And, you know, nowadays, like we're, we're over this, or is it this universal biological scientific truth? And, you know, like that, that, mm. that these are different ways in which people have tried to take psychoanalysis apart. Either it is a universal truth, it's not a universal truth, or it's a historical, or it's ahistorical, or it's historicity makes it obsolete and so on and so forth. And he looked at Lacan's work. And in fact, Lacan says that psychoanalysis is invented in relationship to a modern conception of the subject that was a real break from another form of understanding whatever, what it meant to be human, which was a scientific conception of the subject that made sexuality a foreign terrain. And that if you looked at science or you looked at religious discourse, it was in relationship to sexuality. I mean, Lacan's like kind of most obvious example is if you look at yin and yang and Chinese conceptions of cosmology, it's obviously about male and female sexual difference. It's obviously about some polarities like this and polarities within the body that it's trying to organize into an entire kind of systematic understanding of the world. Science is arises slowly over time, 17th century to where we are now. And over that period of time, it exiles sexuality into another domain. And psychoanalysis is born at a certain moment that that reaches a pitch. 
in order to then speak to what has now become foreign to subjectivity. And I, he just he just did this like in such a clear way. It's true. It's very clear in Lacan. And he just sort of pulled it out, and and it was really nice to read it actually this last week. And um, my you know my I think meta I think Western medicine in particular suffers from this. It does extraordinary things with its anatomical scientific conception of the subject, but you know the kinds of problems that our people are running into it, it has a very hard time thinking holistically it's a specialized version of the body in bits and pieces anatomical conception of the subject the way this thing works and that thing works and this thing works and that things works it's centralized the brain and the you know the sort of neurological conception of the subject it keeps kind of undoing this you know now the brain might you know the the the, the brain might be in our guts these days we're not sure if we're moving towards that conception yeah. uh, but you know and then it can't I really think it can't touch sexuality it can't touch um, human emotional suffering it can't touch a more holistic conception of the subject and the subject as influenced by environmental social factors that well. Mm. Um, it sort of freaks out when it reaches this point because it, it needs that discrete individual, um, Paul Preciado calls it the, the body as a museum version of the human being. Yes, yeah, it's, it's funny you say that actually because I'm not quite sure why, I mean, as I was reading the collection, I, I kept feeling this sense of the body as kind of inconvenient or a kind of ambivalence towards the body, you know, kind of useless organs and the story about Lacan talking about the orgasm as a, a brief break from the demands they place on us. I mean, it's too broad a question maybe to ask about psychoanalysis in general, but in the work you do, like, how, like what do you make of the body? Like, if, if medicine uh, sort of exiles uh, sexuality and certain questions of the body relating to sex, what what do you think you do with it in psychoanalysis or what do you think maybe contemporary psychoanalysis does with it well i think so i think this this dominant mode let's say that we're in which you have to then also incorporate capitalism and capitalism has completely invaded medicine at least in the u.s um pharma and so on um the body is inconvenient or it's something that makes money for people or both. <laughs> or both, yeah. <laughs> um, or its inconvenience can be the source of a lot of money making. Mm. Um, and I think psychoanalysis tries to do something else than that. It tries to bring back desire. It tries to bring back the utility of desire. It tries to bring back a different way of relating to your body and knowledge that's in the body. I mean, there's, we've lost this a lot. Everyone likes to talk about... You know, everyone goes to yoga now and tries to get back in touch with their bodies. But, um, and I, I'm all for that. But, you know, I think psychoanalysis is its own ways of trying to also do this. So it, it's very important for me, actually, in that respect. And, and, you know, the conception of the analyst is that we listen for the childhood and the trauma and the language, but we also are listening to the body very, very closely. Mm. And we're trying to kind of bring it into the foreground, I think, especially just in the attention to symptoms. Because one of the strangest things to me is that we all have symptoms. We all have bodily symptoms, whether it's back pain, whether it's chronic UTIs, whether it's irritable bowel syndromes of different sorts, whether it's tinnitus, whether it's 
eczema, you know, there's always, there's something and you, and, and medicine knows that it can't just say that these have just simple biological undercurrents, you know, whether it's high blood pressure, whatever it is, we know that stress causes blood pressure issues that will lead to early onset death. It's a fact. And yet it cannot just be treated medically. Nevertheless, um, what's really interesting to me is that people live with this, these symptoms without really thinking about them. And then they come to the analyst who takes interest in it and a whole world opens up. And it's literally as if, if I had not been there to say, they drop it on the side of their discourse. You know, oh, I do this and I had to do my thing in the morning because of my whatever. It'll literally sound like that. And I'll say, what's the thing about, what's the thing in, about the whatever? Mm-hmm. And then you find out that there's a ritual to deal with some chronic underlying, let's say, bowel situation. There's an obsessional ritual. There's supplements being taken. There's weird doctor's opinions that don't make any. There's a whole world there that they don't let themselves think about or speak out loud to another person, really. And so do you see what you do as medical in any way, or do you see it as a sort of adjacent it's <laughs> a really good question um i do actually i mean i i work in hospitals i care about developments in biology and anatomy i pay attention to these things i don't i mean i freud and lacan who are probably the most important um thinkers to me were both doctors and i can hear that in their work and so it's very important to me actually I wanted to ask you about Lacan actually and, and um, maybe in a more general sense like what it is about his work that um, you find so engaging or you find so important um, I guess maybe to roll that question into another one is the, the phrase the term desire um, means something kind of specific to Lacan that I don't know maybe in everyday parlance people maybe don't see as a specific thing maybe think of it in a more general way um, yeah, what is it about Lacan that you find so interesting? Uh, what does he do for you in your work? I, don't, I think he has, um, he's very funny. That helps <laughs> a lot. No, no, really, he's like laugh out loud funny when you, once you, once you start to hear his, um, I don't know, his sort of sardonic quality. Freud's also very funny. Freud's funny is different. And a lot of people don't hear it. They hear this kind of dry, um, I don't know, Austrian person, but, but he's, he's very sarcastic for it. Um, so the two of them are within this tradition of something that's very funny, but also very serious. And I like those two things together and they always surprise me. I don't know. And there's this quality of reading their work and it's not a quality of a lot of other work, unfortunately, but I read it and, um, I'm always, I'm constantly surprised and I don't know how they did it. I don't, you know, it, the the hubris of creating a theory of everything that they do. You just, there's a moment in time, I think, for that. I don't know how much that's going to happen anymore with any given intellectual or thinker. Um, but the time that they allotted themselves to do this totally megalomaniacal <laughs> project of thinking through the unconscious and the the real effort. I mean. Freud's body of work is immense. 
Lacan's body of work as well, even if you just take into consideration the 28 years that he decided to teach on a new subject and, and the record that's left behind. I mean, in our contemporary life, we can never give the time and effort to this. So there's something about going through this and what someone is able to do when they just devote themselves to it. And then clinically, you know, I mean, I, I, I deal with, I'm, I'm just always listening to patients all the time. That's my life. Um, but I, whatever I read in this, it suddenly helps me hear the patients in a way I realize I never would have heard if I hadn't read this. And that, that I think is the, the value is it's as if like your, your, your worst habitual ways of running through life and thinking are um, overturned. And you're, you're suddenly open to an entire terrain that's, that's there, but that you wouldn't necessarily have access to. And when Lacan speaks about desire, I think this is the terrain that he's talking about. It's a, it's a terrain in one's life, in one's mind, in one's history. It's an organization of a field of the subject that's always there, but that we don't have direct access to. And how it structures a life, how it can help a life, how it it's being there but not being worked with makes one suffer. Um, for me, this is just a you ubiquitous truth um could i ask you to talk about his conception of desire then and, and, and what's specific about how he understands desire uh, as opposed maybe distinct from freud or, or or more general idea in the popular consciousness about what desire is and what that might help us think about with regards to sex mm -hmm. i think you know with with lacan's conception of desire the importance of it is that it's always based in um an object that's not there that's lacking that's absent that's lost and it's a very basic freudian concept that like throughout the development of sexuality it's in relationship to things that are lost whether it's the breast the feces the genitals which what are they even they're <laughs> something that falls down something that's like on the inside that you you know like you have to form a relationship to to parents that are prohibited as objects of desire you know it, there's a whole field of sexuality early on that is constructed through successive losses traumas castrations encounters with absence and that society comes in the other end and tries to offer you a billion million objects to, to satisfy this desire, but desire in and of itself is not satisfiable. And in fact, it, it lives on what actually can't be satisfied or what's gone and in the permutations and articulations of that. You know, and it, it, it you know, what's nice about Lacan is it, it gets out of the stupid I think bastardization of Freud, but maybe Freud himself sometimes could fall into it of the sheer repetition of childhood patterns as if, oh, you know, you just date a version of your mom and your dad, or, oh, you, you know, had problems weaning. So you just have like really excessive oral desire. You know, for him, it's about the, the really elaborate symbolic constructions that one, that the mind is capable of creating to iterate this desire without ever fulfilling it, you know? And, and I think part of what happens in psychoanalytic work is that you get closer to that articulation of desire. We support desire, which is often pushed down or shoved in different direction or given objects that are bad, <laughs> addictive objects like cell phones, um, iPhones, um, rather than supporting it 
and how it articulates itself, which is what's absolutely unique about a given person's life. And which in the most obvious examples you can see in someone's artistic or scientific or intellectual pursuits, because they're after something that they absolutely have to be after and they have to do it and they have to do it again and again and again in a thousand permutations. And that's their life work. And it's as if there's someone who somehow is riding that wave mm. of their desire life. They've allowed themselves to do it or they just can't do anything else. Right? They're going to have to make that same sculpture 565 times and call that their body of work. Um, but the kind of democratic impulse in me wants to say that it's not just for those people with their artistic or intellectual pursuits or scientific pursuits, but every single one of us. Every single one of us, our life is a miraculous construction. Our sexuality is in a miraculous construction. Our relationships that break us apart are a miraculous construction that, you know, really come from a place that have a logic that have a sense and have meaning to it. And unfortunately, most of us are really alienated from this. The world really alienates us from it. We, you know, it's as if we have no idea what we're doing or why we're doing it or what the hell is going on. And you can live like that for quite a long time without any, you could live like that. That could be your whole life. You could feel that. And that's tragic. And it's not, it's not like psychoanalysis gives you some ultimate meaning. I mean, Freud was very against that Lacan as well. I mean, there's a bleakness to it, but I, I, I you know, I also love the, um, the beautiful side of it. Mm. Um, could you just talk a little bit more about what you mean, that, uh, what is that process of being alienated from desire? What do you mean by that? What does that look like when we're kind of alienated from desire in the way you're describing? I think it's a, you know, Freud called it um, discontent or malaise, that, that society in its, in its amnesia and its um, repression of sexuality and this modern conception of the subject and increasing industrialization and capitalistic forces and so on, it's putting you at odds with um, desire, sexuality, the unconscious, drive life, death. <laughs> it's putting us, it's, 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 it's putting these things, it's hiding them. And I, and the result according, you know, for Freud, and I think it's true is alienation and malaise. You don't know, you, you do things, you don't know why you do it. You, you, you feel unhappy. You don't know why you feel unhappy. You blame yourself for feeling unhappy, which makes it impossible to do anything. The more you blame yourself for it. You don't know who to blame. We're blaming everyone all over the place for everything right now. I mean, but we're like, that is an alienation because it, we don't know what this has to do with us. And the question is, you know, the analyst says, who are you? What do you want? And to make you have to start trying to say something about that and knowing that there is something there to say. There's a, there's a whole, there's a whole world and life that will come from really allowing someone to ask that question and being there to listen to it and to support its articulation. And, and the idea is that the more you support that, the more the desire comes forward. It's absolutely my experience that, that that's true. And my classic example is teenagers. I love teenagers because they've just gotten out of childhood and like the world seems like pretty messed up to them and they're really unhappy and they hate their parents and all of the rest of it. They're very good. They want to go out there, but they don't, you know, they're scared. 
and they have no idea and they don't know who they are. And they come in and they're like, uh, you know, are you a policeman? Are you a teacher? Are you just going to tell me what I'm doing is wrong? And then when they figure out that that's not the case, this whole person emerges, this whole, you know, this whole set of questions and life and experiences and thoughts and sense of their families and their history and what they're burdened by and how they live with it and how painful it is. And it's, it's all of a sudden there. And it would not have been there, I promise you, if I wasn't there to ask it. Mm. I only think that you can get this far. This is a podcast, so I'm making a very small gesture with my fingers. I don't think you can get, um, you can't get very far simply with friends or simply in your own mind with yourself. Mm. I'm just thinking about like what some people come to psychoanalysis or psychotherapy wanting to get out of it. And there's one idea of that, which is you kind of, you become a kind of better managed person. You know, you kind of find it easier to manage. Correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe you find it easier to manage your desire in a way that's more workable with, I guess, these institutions that we're talking about that are ordered. But that strikes me as slightly distinct from what it is that you think psychoanalysis does or should be doing. Is that accurate? Yeah, I don't I, th- I don't think that it's more ordered with respect to the way that the world works. I think it's more the consistent logic within a given subject. And then they have to decide what they want to do with that with respect to the world, which may or may not give a shit, honestly, about what they care about. And that might be a really painful confrontation. Um, but at least you know and you can make a decision versus not really knowing what what you 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 have inherited and what you seem to really be interested in and like if you don't know that then you're just sucked into various institutions in the world and you don't you know do I like this do I not like this is this what I want to do? Am I just doing this for money? Is this because this is looks like an acceptable life? You know, you don't know. Mm. You know, and, and to say to yourself, look, I, I want to do this really weird thing. Like, this is what I want to do. And I, and, but I'll do this to make money in order to keep doing that. Or I have a way of funneling this into this pathway, this whatever, more conventional pathway, fine. But I, I don't answer that question for them. You know, they have they they come looking at themselves, and that's the important point that an analyst doesn't give advice and an analyst doesn't care whether you are successful or not successful, but that we stay on the side of the patient. The life questions are different. We will be there with you as you confront this world and what you want to do with it or what it what it will offer to you or not offer to you. I'm cutting in here in the edit just to provide some context for the next part of this discussion. In the second half of this episode, I asked Jameson about useless organs, one of the essays in her collection in which she addresses the work of the philosopher Paul Preciado. In November 2019, Paul B. Preciado was invited to speak in front of 3,500 psychoanalysts at the École de la Cause Freudienne in Paris, and in his address, Preciado offered a critique of the psychoanalytic establishment with specific attention paid to the field's contributions to ideologies of sex, gender, sexual difference, colonialism, and white supremacy. In Jameson's essay, she responds to this critique, and engages with Paul's other work, mainly his seminal text, Testo Junkie, 
noting the psychoanalytic tendencies at play, and taking seriously Preciado's demand for a mutant psychoanalysis that goes beyond these criticisms. It's really nice to hear you talk about psychoanalysis, uh, psychoanalysis in such like a, I think you use the phrase kind of open and um, like radical. And as I said just briefly before we started recording, one of the essays that I enjoyed the most in the collection was the engagement you have with the work of Paul Preciado. And he has had this quite profound, quite widely engaged with confrontation with uh, Lacanian psychoanalysis. Could you, um, maybe for listeners that don't know, just kind of introduce his work and maybe a little bit about how you see his relationship to psychoanalysis? Mm-hmm. I mean, Preciado is interesting. I think his allegiance, although I don't know whether he would say this explicitly, would be Deleuze um, and Foucault. And there's this perspective that Foucault and Deleuze are incompatible with Lacan in particular. This is a very French fight. This is a very, like, <laughs> you know, May 1968 French fight. Um, You also have to realize how much older Lacan is than either Foucault or Deleuze. Lacan's born in 1901 um, and dies at 80 in 1981. So he's an older generation. He would have been the generation of Sartre, right? Sartre would have been his contemporary. And I think that there's not a Foucault or a Deleuze without a Lacan. So, I mean, you know, I just generationally, I think this is important. And I, I think that the critiques of, of any next generation are incredibly important to take up and to square and to, to work with as, you know, the next iteration. Um, you know, you can't have an anti-Oedipus without having had Mr. Oedipus beforehand. Um, anyways, Preziato kind of comes in, uh, I think, with an interesting way of parsing Deleuze and Foucault via the question of trans and transitioning. And the book Testo Junkie is very important. It's it's published under Beatrice Preziato, after which um, it will be Paul Preziato. And the book is the story of the transition. But it's also a story of, you know, their conception of um, where the world is at at that point, which they call the... I always get this wrong. Psycho, pharma, pornographic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> era. I, I think you got it. I think you got it. I get it right. Yeah. Um, I've got it in my notes because I always, uh, <laughs> I always get it wrong. Yeah, and and the idea is that we we really moved somewhere different than where Freud and Lacan were at, what they were debating, and with the technologization, with the developments of medical technology, especially things like hormones, with. Um, the body being so externalized that, it, that, that there's not like this internal body, this body with organs that we're in somewhere we're different. We're in hypercapitalism as well. Um, and, and everything is a prosthesis. The iPhone is the, is the easiest example that everyone understands that this is now an object that like we're living with and through and has, and our entire being is in that object. Yeah. And um, trans is really interesting with respect to this for Preciado because trans is, is in a way the, um, an, a, a response, an answer, a kind of radical position with respect to this new reality because it completely undoes gender, 
um, it undoes even the most basic conceptions of sex and the body. It undoes the family. It undoes bourgeois conceptions of life. So he, you know, he pushes trans into this domain and, and also talks about basically at this point using these technologies, the way that trans uses these, uses hormones, for example, or uses surgery or, um, it's using the tools of this psychopharma pornographic era against itself, mm. you know? And so it might have been the case that language, language and control, repressive control over sexuality were the tools of the oppressor for Freud and Lacan, but those aren't anymore the tools of the oppressor. The tools of the oppressor are somewhere different. Um, so for Preciado, I think at his most generous, psychoanalysis is, is it would be in line with what he's doing. In his most aggressive towards psychoanalysis, it is simply a bourgeois instrument of control and a model of the body that wants to organize sex and gender and the family unit and stabilize it, you know, and get people, get people in line with the articulation of their desire within these constraints and not in the mode of what he's up to, which is the undoing of it at its most extreme. So I mean, that, that's kind of how I would articulate the Preciado position. Um, but I think he's incredibly ambivalent, actually. I think he likes psychoanalysis a lot and you find Freud everywhere. And in fact, the idea that Freud just absorbed all the technologies around him and Freud himself had a hormone replacement therapy. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, that's this guy Steinock who won, who was nominated seven times, like he didn't win for the Nobel Prize for his work on hormones. Mm. And it's his work that would lead to the, um, the science that would be part of transitioning. Freud had the operation. He had it so that, um, I forget what they do. They like put some, they put some testicular tissue in you to kind of try to boost your symptoms. He was trying to cure his depression. Freud had surgery on his nose. You know, we know Freud smoked so many cigars until he had 30 surgeries on his mouth. So Preciado says Freud's um, uh, cloaca maxima, sewer mouth that just absorbs all of it and tests it all on himself. And he also analyzed himself, right? He wasn't analyzed, he analyzed himself. He tests everything on himself. And that's also one of Preciado's tenants is this idea of taking all the tools that are available in an environment and not just absorbing them passively, but using them on yourself, finding out how to deprogram in a way. Yeah. And you draw a parallel between that and what, what you see as the psychoanalytic process, but specifically the idea that the analyst has to experiment on themselves before it, it helps anyone else. Yeah, I mean, I see it the same way. I think that we, on the one hand, have to understand what's in our, in the environment that our patients are contending, that we watch our own, analyze, deconstruct our own symptoms. Um, like Preciado loves this tapping into the like libidinal terrain, which is sounds to me a lot like desire. Mm. You know, like like to, to push something to the limit you have to do it via terrain of desire and i see psychoanalysis that that way it's not it's not trying to manage things it's trying to explode them as much as possible which is why you know i mean i i tell a story in which i think it's really beautiful and wondrous it's also very painful i mean being in analysis is incredibly painful and you have to be prepared to kind of fuck up your whole life. I mean, I, most patients will undo their life in a radical way, you know, or come to live with their life, but having really questioned it. And that's hard. Mm. 
So, uh, you know, I, I, you know, Preciado lives in a context I don't live in. Um, I mean, he's from Spain, but he, he's often in Paris. And I don't deal with a lot of the Lacanian scene. It sounds pretty abysmal. My encounters with it were not pretty. They're fine. I just like, I don't, I don't like it myself. <laughs> so I don't blame him. I don't blame him for showing up at that conference and basically giving them the finger. Um, I would do the same thing. So, you know, and I, I institution, whatever happened with Lacan in Paris and France and relationship to the philosophical institutions there and relationship to psychoanalysis is a, is a sad story. Again, this is my concern with the institution of psychoanalysis. Lacan was kicked out of the IPA. He was forced to start his own institute. He was forced more into academia, which he didn't, he didn't, he wanted to be a clinician. And then he's talking to all these philosophers. They're all absorbing his thought. Then they're all fighting with his thought. They all wanted recognition with them. He didn't care. He didn't give it to them. Then they were all angry. I mean, it's like a gnarly story. Mm. His institution splinters into 50 institutions or something like this. All the Lacanians fight with each other. They like, you know, can't be in the same room. It just sounds awful. Mm. And, uh, you know, Preciado is there, but on the sidelines, he's not a psychoanalyst and I'm in America and I don't, I, you know, whatever, that's like what those people are doing over there. And I, I, I sort of feel like, do we have to fight with them? Why don't we just ignore them and do what we're doing, you know? <laughs> yeah. I don't really think that they're representative of anything hegemonic in any way. I think they're like some people who are getting really old at this point. Yeah, does that slightly undermine the point that he's making with regard to his audience then? If, if Because I remember that happening and, and, and feeling like it was a kind of a big statement. And I actually saw him speak at the ICA about a year later. And, and I remember feeling really conflicted about, well, okay, does this mean we have to throw away all this psychoanalytic stuff? You know, should we really, you know, get rid of this stuff? And, and so reading your essay is kind of interesting because obviously he points to you and sort of says, <laughs> you know, you're not like the other analysts. You know, <laughs> what what do you think? Uh, what do you think he makes of your work? What you know? What do you think it, it might be about your work that maybe he feels sets you apart? He probably just hears a different. I you know, I a hundred percent bet you that Preciado goes to try to talk to the Lacanians and they're patronizing assholes. <laughs> I'm sure that that's happened, you know, and they're like, oh, okay, whatever, nice little philosopher, good for you. Yeah. But they did that to me, like, oh, nice little American. Yeah, you try and understand Lacan, good luck. So, you know, I, I just think that's how they are. And um, they should be appreciated for what they've done and you could throw away what you don't want. And the attitude seems like some old thing and the world has moved on. And that's sad, it's like the end of an era. And do we have to throw all the psychoanalysis out? I hope we don't. I really hope we don't. And I, I don't even think Preciado does because he, he has that book, you know, Can the Monster Speak mm -hmm. to These Idiot Lacanians? The answer is obviously going to be no. <laughs> <laughs> but if you read Apartment in Uranus, if you read Testo Junkie, even if you read the Contra um, Sexual Manifesto, he, there's so much psychoanalysis in there. He, love, he loves his dream life. He sees dreams as coming at pivotal moments of transition that have you know, informed him about the next place to go in his thinking. He thinks of his work as a radical form of mourning. I mean, 
He's talking about what it means to access libido and the way that that society is organizing libido, both to increase it, but then also take it away from you. I mean, how can you think all of this without psychoanalysis? I mean, that would be my question to Preciado. And he would say, if we're having a conversation and we have, yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but those Lacanians are really awful conservative people. And I'd say, yeah, sure. Okay, so I'm aware we're nearly out of time here, but um, I really want to finish on this note of psychoanalysis as maintaining this kind of radical open potential. And I guess um, Preciado talks about a a kind of mutant psychoanalysis and and other parts in the book, you're kind of grappling with uh, the point or kind of direction of psychoanalysis. and I really love it when you quote Adorno and you say that um, kind of to think about progress, you should just be really simplistic. And I think he says something like, no one goes hungry, no more torture, no more Auschwitz. Um, and I was just wondering to finish off kind of how you address those quite grand aims, even if they are simplistic, they're really profound and important. How, how is that something that you address, you know, just in, in the room with one of the, you know, just on a very small level on the, on the, on the level of treatment. I mean, I think um, there's a couple ways that I would answer it. One is the training of a psychoanalyst is pretty extreme. I mean, in terms of what you have to do in your own analysis and the work you have to do. And um, the accrued knowledge of someone who's really worked psychoanalytically with patients is beautiful and rare because there is something that happens when you've been handling unconsciouses for a long time. And I mean, where I was 20 years ago versus where I am now is like astounding to me. And I like to, I'm excited actually. It's a nice thing about my profession to see where I'll be 20 years down the line. And so the knowledge of elders in this field is, is important. And this, we have a real problem with the question of training. Know, what it means it's a it's a long training and in this world it's hard to afford that mm. so there's there's that question how do we keep this transmission alive how do we help people afford it should they want to enter into this profession how do we transmit this knowledge and then how do we also bring psychoanalysis you know so that it's not just for you know the people who can afford it how how can it be more equitably available um and there's various fronts in which i try to work on that and then you know, I, I like the way that you brought up the the question of the delusion of progress. And I think it's important in Preciado as well to always see the double-edged sword of these, these great epistemic shifts in society. It's very Freudian. For instance, I'm not going to value any form of society more highly than any other. Um, and every technological innovation, intervention into life will bring dissatisfaction. It will never not bring dissatisfaction. And and the psychoanalyst has to be aware of that. And the very simplistic idea that no one should go hungry, we should be free from torture, there should be no more Auschwitz. I think the way that I, 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 it's very important to me clinically that patients don't know what they're responsible for or how to take responsibility over their lives or how to accord blame or how to parse their desire from what has been done to them. And that I really think psychoanalysis helps sort some of that so that you actually understand what society is doing to you 
and have a better sense of your limitations and what you're capable of, your, what, what is impossible and what is possible. And that is a very hard thing to figure out. I cannot believe how hard it is for us, how this society makes it so convoluted that we don't even know how to hold society accountable at this point in time. And so at the very least, the, the value of psychoanalysis to the world is that I think it clears out some of those clouds and gives you a sense of, of how to apportion um, a sense of responsibility. And, and I think, you know, hopefully that means that people can take up more ethical positions in their life. Thank you for listening to Red Medicine and thank you to Jameson for such a wonderful conversation. Just a final reminder about the event taking place on May 25th at the Horse Hospital in London. If you haven't already, make sure you grab a ticket. The cost is pay what you can and I hope to see you there. Thanks again. <laughs>